First John chapter 4. I will be bringing God's word to us this morning from verses 13 to 16. And if you need a topic for this sermon, the topic is grounds of Christian assurance. Grounds of Christian assurance. So I'll read with us 1 John chapter 4 from verse 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment... Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother. For he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I read the entire text to give us a context of where our sermon will be from this morning. But we are primarily concerned with verse 13 to 16. Let us pray. Our Father, we have come once again before your word. We believe that the Bible means what it says when it tells us that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word is the means by which salvation comes to sinful men, women, boys, and girls, that your word is the means by which your people are sanctified and built up in Christ. So we look into your word this morning look up to you asking that you bless the preaching of your word and that you grant both the preacher and the hearers the help of the spirit to preach to understand and to apply your word in all of our lives this morning in jesus name we pray Amen. i don't know how many of us have heard this before um so what I'm about to say is prominent in many world religions. And it is the idea of what happens after a person dies. What does eternity look like and how do people move from this life to the next? One view that is prevalent across many religions and you see a variation of this in Islam is the fact that 
on that day of judgment, people will be made to walk on a bridge. Now, this bridge is so thin that it is thinner than one strand of a human hair. It is so thin that it is even perhaps thinner than the edge of a very sharp knife. And then those who pass successfully from one point to the next, now Islam recognizes three categories of people. So the first category are those who will move with the Prophet Muhammad. So Prophet Muhammad and some faithfuls will cross with speed. Then the second category of people are those who are believers, but they were not very good believers. Like, they, they messed up a lot. So these ones are the weak Muslims or the weak faithfuls. And so they will fall off. But they are falling off, they will go to purgatory. And then the last category are those who are unbelievers, like you and me, infidels, who will fall off to their hell. The problem, however, is if you ask a Muslim or people who hold on to that view, what category do you belong to at the moment? The question, the answer is always, we hope to be in the first category. We hope to be among those first people who will run with speed with the prophet. And then this idea of hoping and not being sure of where we are going to has also found its way into Christianity. If you were like me, who grew up in a church where the high mark of a sermon is the altar call, then you understand what I'm saying. During the altar call, the preacher would usually say, you don't know, maybe you believed Jesus yesterday, but perhaps you stole something this morning. A person went to hell and found somebody who stole a matchstick. And so you need to repent. And so I went to many altar calls because as the guy is, as the preacher is speaking, I'm asking myself, ha, so that I will not fall into the category of those who will go to hell, let me rededicate my life to Christ. And so the rededication really is because of uncertainty. I do not know where I am going to. The entire book of John was written for this very purpose. That those who have eternal life should be assured that they have eternal life. That those who are going to heaven should know that they are going to heaven. And this morning in our text, this is the primary concern of the apostle. You know, he has been saying this in different ways from the very first verse of this book. From 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. But here he comes to put it in very glaring terms. In verses 13 to 16, that those who know that they are going to heaven are those are those who are commended. In other words, he commands us to know if we are going to heaven or we are going to hell. If we have eternal life or we do not have eternal life. The last time we were in verse 7 to verse 12. And in verse 12, if you look into your Bible, he ended by saying this, that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, in the remaining part of chapter 4, he's going to deal with these two ideas. The first idea is God abiding in us, and the second idea is that of perfected love. So, in verse 13 to 16, which we are concerned with today, he's trying to address the issue of knowing that God abides in us. 
And from verse 17 to verse 21, which we'll look at the next time we gather uh, in 1 John, will be the idea of perfect love. So you see, the apostle splits these two things he's talking about in verse 12 and explains it from verse 13 to verse 21. And this morning, there are primarily two things that we ought to learn. I have two main desires with the text this morning. The first is to understand what the apostle means by those who abide in God and God abiding in them. And the second, my second desire, is that we may come to know whether we are part of those people, whether we are actually those people. So what does it mean to abide and be abided in? And how do I know that I am abiding in God and God is abiding in me? Or in me. So first of all, let's look at verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. We abide in him and he in us. Friends, it is very possible to speak about Christianity in sub-biblical terms. When I say sub-biblical, I'm saying that in terms that are not entirely in sync with the scriptures. It is possible to define a Christian in a way that falls short of the fullness of what the scripture says a Christian is. In fact, I would say that that is a major problem of our world today. The English professor C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Mere Christianity. And in the preface of that book, he explores this idea. That the word Christian has fallen upon hard times. And he used the example of a word in English called the, the, the word gentleman. In times gone by, when they said a man is a gentleman, they meant two things. That the man has a coat of arms and that he's a landlord. So a gentleman is a man who has a coat of arms and is a lord in old England. After a while, people came and said, eh, but surely a man who has that should behave in a certain way. So today, when we say gentleman, a tenant can be a gentleman. But originally, a gentleman was somebody who had a coat of arms and had property. The same thing has happened to the word Christian. Even amongst us today, it is possible that some of us are describing Christianity or saying a Christian, defining a Christian in ways that are sub-biblical and do not capture the fullness of scripture. What are some of the dangers we fall into? One of the dangers we fall into, or one of the ways we misdefine Christianity is that a Christian is somebody who follows a fixed set of rules. A Christian is somebody who reads his Bible daily. A Christian is somebody who prays every day. A Christian is somebody who wakes up by midnight to intercede for the land. A Christian is somebody who fasts for 70 days at the start of the year. Now, it is true, it is biblically true, that when a person says he's a Christian, his life should be marked by holiness and a certain strictness of life. But that's not all a Christian is. You know why? Because it is possible for a man to be marked by strictness and discipline and not be a Christian. The example that comes to mind at the moment is the example of two men who lived in the 18th century in America. Then it was the American colonies. colonies. And the first man was, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born 1703. 
So America got its independence 1776. So Edwards was born 1703, and he did not see independence. He died when he was 54. The second man is a man by the name of Benjamin Franklin, who was born three years after Edwards. Now, both men were quite influential in America then. Edwards was known for his revivals, and Benjamin Franklin was one of the founding fathers. Now, Jonathan Edwards, during his life, came up with a series of 70 resolutions. We call them the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, where he, he put rules as to how he was going to live. He says he would take care of his time. He would take care of what he eats. He would seek to improve upon that which God has given him. Another man, Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian, had a set of 13 virtues. And among those 13 virtues are humility, temperance, modesty. And at the end of the day, Benjamin Franklin will sit down with his diary and review himself. So whereas Puritan Jonathan Edwards is reviewing his day, deist Benjamin Franklin was also reviewing his day. And if you were to look at Benjamin Franklin, rather, you would almost not see anything that would look unholy. He's a strict man. He's a disciplined man. In fact, he was one of the people who supported the ministry of George Whitfield, but he was never a Christian. Another way in which we misrepresent this term Christian is by thinking a Christian is somebody who knows the Bible well. That if a person is able to define doctrine, he's a Christian. If a person is able to define justification by faith and square it up, he is a Christian. Christianity is more than knowing stories. More than having a mental knowledge of the facts written in the Bible. It is more than reading books, multiple books a year. It is more than just being acquainted with the Puritans and the Reformers and Reformed preachers. It is more than that. A third way in which we misrepresent this term Christian is by thinking about it in cultural terms. What do I mean? In Nigeria, if you are not a Muslim, you are a Christian. If you are going to take a survey of this estate and you are going to knock gate to gate, I think... 95% of the people in this estate will either identify as Christians or Muslims. Perhaps 5% will be Ogun worshippers, uh, atheists. They would identify and say, I am a Christian. And this is the danger of those who grew up in Christian homes. Children. Because you, your father and mother is a Christian does not mean you are a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home I was not taught this. The Sunday school teachers just assumed that he's a good boy. He does not lie. He does not cheat. He does not fight with anybody. This is a Christian boy. A good Christian boy. And the assumption was just that since you are in church, you are a Christian boy or a Christian girl. That's cultural Christianity. And John wants us to understand what biblical Christianity is. Who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who, because of Christ and his work, has been brought into a unique, mystical relationship with the living God. Someone who, because of Christ and what Christ has done, 
has been brought into a unique mystical relationship with the living God. And John describes the relationship in this way. He says, God abides in us and we abide in God. This is what theologians have called union with Christ. This idea of us abiding in Christ, Christ abiding in us, appears over 200 times in the New Testament. In fact, I dare say that it is the major way that the apostles define a Christian. The major way in which the apostle Paul defines a Christian is someone who is in Christ. And this idea of being in God and God in us is beyond what we can really comprehend in its entirety. We find many analogies of this in the Bible. In John 15, verse 5, for example, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And the idea there is that if Christ is the vine, we as the, as the branches are organically united to him. We are joined to him. In Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 23 to the end, the apostle Paul began to talk about the duties of a husband and the duties of a wife. And at some point he stopped and said, he's really talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. And he called it a mystery. The same way a man is joined with his wife and becomes one flesh, Christ and his church are united in that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, from verse 12 to 17, the Apostle Paul talks about the idea of a head and body parts or members of the body. And he says Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ. And what he was talking about is this, that we and Christ are united. It is something beyond anything we can, we can explain. We go so far and we stop where we stop. But it is this fact. A Christian is somebody, not somebody who keeps rules, not somebody who reads books, but somebody who is in a relationship with God. And this relationship is a vital living relationship. It is a relationship that has an effect. It is an effective relationship. It is a relationship that has life, that is full of energy. And I read the story of a man one time who would come to his pastor and tell the pastor, the music is bad in this church. Like, what is the problem? You know how maybe you invited somebody before to church and the person tells you, yeah, no praise and worship. One day I was coming into church and one of the shuttle guys I was asking me, he said, pastor, I want to come to your church. I said, come now. He said, but the problem is when I no get drum, when I no get drum, Apparently, when they pass, they don't used to hear drums. And so this guy would meet his pastor, the pastor of the church, right? And say, the music is bad. Can we do something better? Can we, you no, no, let's do something better. And one day, because it was a, they were singing hymns, one day, he went to the pastor, and he told the pastor, wow, there has been a great improvement in the music. Well done, sir. Well done to the team. Well done to everybody. There has been a great improvement. And the pastor told him, nothing has changed in the music. Something has changed in you. Because when you were singing the hymns, the problem was not the hymns. It was the fact that you could not say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. 
It's because you could not say that blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. It is because you have not been brought into a vital relationship with God when you now hear Christ is in me and that makes sense. The reason why people struggle sometimes with hymns is not because of choice of music. It's the fact that the words that they are singing is not a reality. It's not a reality. When that becomes a reality, there is, there is a, a relationship with God. There is a back and forth with God. When I read my Bible and I look at it, it's not, it's not, just, it's not just boring stories. The sermons are not just boring talks. You don't just come to church to listen to somebody blab for 45 minutes to one hour. You are really listening to God. You have a relationship with God. He ministers to you and you respond to him. Union with Christ is vital. It is living. It is energetic. It is effective. So that's what John tells us. That a Christian properly defined is a person who is in this state. Who is in Christ, in God, and God is in that person. That's the first point. But he wants us to know how we can come to an assurance that that is true of us. Look at verse 13. He says, by this we know. That's the key word. We know. We come to an assurance of this fact. We come to a place where we are not driven to and fro by doubt about this fact. We come to a place where our minds are so clear that even when the preacher is shouting, you can go to hell today, we can say, ah, but I am in Christ and I cannot go to hell. I am in Christ and whatever comes my way, I am held in him. We can come to this point. But this question seems dumb, doesn't it? Why are you asking me how can I know if I'm a Christian? I'm in church. I mean, we could be doing many things this morning. We could be washing our clothes. Some of us have worked from Monday to Saturday. And Sunday is really the only free day. We could be washing our clothes. Some of us have carryover tasks from the previous week. So today would have been a great day to sit down, relax, take warm coffee, warm tea, and do all of those things. How can you ask me this question that, I, uh, how do I know I'm a Christian when I'm in church? I think there are two reasons based on all of us gathered here this morning why this question is important the first reason is because those who are genuinely saved will often go through seasons of doubt those who are properly christians who are actually in god and god in them who are united with christ would often go through certain seasons of doubt they will often go through seasons where they doubt if this is true of them one reason why this happens is because of sin. You know when you have confessed a sin over and over and over again? One day it comes when you are confessing that sin and you tell yourself, there's no way I'm a Christian. There's no way. How can I confess this on Monday, confess this on Tuesday, confess this on Wednesday? There's no way I'm a Christian. How can I be saved when I keep confessing and repenting? Or perhaps... It may be a grievous sin. We learned this on Tuesday in our Bible study. A sin so big as what happened to David. And as Christians, we begin to doubt, how can I be a Christian and I fall into adultery? How can I be a Christian when I just fell into 
Theft. How can I be a Christian when I just effectively denied Christ? Another reason why Christians may go through seasons of doubt is, you know, sometimes God in his providence hides his face. There are times God just, there's nothing wrong. And, I, what, and I'm saying this, this is a very practical thing, it's not theory. So, you have been consistent with church. You have been serious with the means of grace. But then one morning you wake up to pray and it seems as though the heavens are closed. Sometimes God does that to test us. And then when we pray, 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 we can come to wonder, if I'm really a Christian, should God not be answering my prayers? Should he not assure me of his presence? Another reason is, sometimes God leads us literally valleys of shadow of death. We go through hard providences. You wake up one morning, your head is paining you, you go to the hospital, and the doctor says you have a cancerous tumor in your brain. You wake up one morning, you realize you have an incurable disease. Or it may not even be you. It may be your spouse, your husband, or your wife, or your father, or your mother. And you lose everything. There's no money to eat, there's nothing. You're literally looking up to God and saying, if you are my God, why can I not put food on my table? And this person needs to know how he or she can come to an assurance of salvation. That's the first reason why this question is important. The second reason why this question is important is because there are perhaps some of us here this morning who falsely think we are Christians. I'll be a fool to think everybody seated down here is a Christian. It would be a great folly to think every single person, John, Jude, James, Phoebe, all of these people are Christians. So, we need to know how to answer this question so that we will know if we are really Christians or we are not Christians. And John gives us three grounds of assurance. There are three ways that a person can come to an assurance that they are in Christ. Number one, he tells us of the indwelling spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. That the way in which we can come to an assurance of salvation is by the indwelling spirit. This will be a good time to say that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, the Apostle Paul put it this way, that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So there's no Christian without the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who needs a second blessing to receive the Holy Spirit. This is not biblical. There's no such thing as a Christian who needs a second experience. He needs to go up on a mountain. He needs to tarry for a while before the Holy Spirit comes and indwells that person. So we're talking about this fact that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. But how can I come to know that I have the Holy Spirit? Now, in the text, the apostle does not tell us. He just tells us because he has given us of his spirit. However, the scripture tells of us tells us tells us of two major ways by which we can come to know that the Holy Spirit is in us. Number one is the inward witness of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Apostle Paul said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself 
bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now, this is a very, very subjective thing. Paul did not say the spirit bears witness with the pastor that I am a child of God. Or the spirit bears witness with the deacon that I am a child of God. But the spirit will bear witness, will, will bear witness to my spirit that I am a child of God. Perhaps it is this subjective nature of this verse that makes some of us shy away from this. John Calvin, the reformers, the Puritans, and our theological forefathers did not have a problem with this verse. In fact, they strove for this inward witness. They strove for it. John Bonian was getting suicidal after he got saved. And what did he do? He prayed for an inward witness. The Holy Spirit will come into us and tell us, you are a Christian. Now, how does the Holy Spirit tell us? I think it works this way. There are times when you go before the word of God. And then you are having this in your heart. It's as if God himself is telling you, this is true of you. He takes the word of God and brings it forcefully to your heart. It can happen in the bathroom. It can happen anywhere. Just an assurance that, yes, you are my child. Now, note that there are two spirits in the text. It is the Holy Spirit and our spirit. So, these are two witnesses. Our spirits will be telling us, of course, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit now comes using the word of God to tell our spirits that, yes, indeed, you are a child of God. The inward witness of the spirit. There are some things we would say and people would say, ah, you are charismatic. You are now speaking in terms of, no, no, no. This is biblical. That the Holy Spirit has the work, has a work which he does in the hearts of the believers and that is the work of witnessing, telling you, you are a Christian. You know, there's a song that was popularized by Jimmy Reeves and the chorus of that song was, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. The inward witness. Where the Holy Spirit persuades us that we are Christians or convinces us. But the second way is the fruit-bearing work of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, the Apostle Paul introduces us to the fruit of the Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So it's not just subjective. The same spirit who persuades us of our union with Christ will also transform us to look more and more like Christ. He will work in us. So the way that the Holy Spirit assures us is by bringing fruit out in our lives. It's by working in us to produce certain fruits. To gain assurance then, I must ask, what is God doing in my life? Can I see that I am showing the marks of a true Christian. And if a person is not showing that marks, that person has no reason to believe he's a believer. That's the first ground. Second ground is the confession of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
see, this is, this is another ground. That if a person is able to confess that Jesus is God, it is proof that God abides in that person and the person abides in God. Now, it's, it, what John is saying is not just to say verbally, just say, Jesus Christ is Lord. No, that's not what he's saying. We've been looking at this previously in chapter 4. And I want to say that there are two things about this confession that makes it not an easy thing. It walk in the path. The first thing is what we confess and how we... The second is how we confess. So what do we confess in saying that Jesus is the Lord? We are confessing Jesus Christ. And not just a bare confession, but a confession of certain things about Jesus Christ. We are confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look at verse 14. It says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if you go back up to look at verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you are confessing that this person is the Son of God. He is the only Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Friends, everybody confesses Jesus Christ. Even the Muslim confesses Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when a Muslim apologist wants to sound like he's trying to win Christians, you know what you say? Well, I hope you know we also believe in Jesus Christ. And then sometimes we're like, eh, hey, really? What do you believe? Well, he was a nice guy. He was a prophet. And he stops there. That con Excuse me. That confession is worth nothing. It is like carrying paper notes to go and buy something at the supermarket. It's worth nothing. Confession must be that this Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity. Not just that. It is also a confession that this Jesus is a man. He says that he's the one sent from God. So he came from God to our world. And he was a man. He was a real man. In the opening verses of 1 John, John was trying to establish this fact. Where he said that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We touched him. We heard him. We saw him. He was real flesh and real blood. To confess Jesus is to confess the God man. Not a nice guy. To confess him is to confess that we needed God to save us. See, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden and by extension all of us was to commit an infinite sin against an infinite God. And because that sin was so great, only someone who is infinite can pay for that sin, can bear the punishment of that sin. Hence, the need for God to come and bear it. But then, only a man can represent us. God cannot represent us. We need a man. And hence, God became man. So to confess Jesus Christ then is not just saying Jesus is to say he was God who became man to save us. But how do we make this confession? This confession involves a genuine affirmation of Christ that is accompanied by faith and repentance. 
Now, this is a problem we struggle with in our country. We think that if a person is shouting, Jesus, 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 he's a Christian. For a person to properly acknowledge Jesus Christ, there must be repentance. If I'm saying Jesus is Lord, truly, it means that I have abandoned all my ways of salvation. I have abandoned Shongo. I have abandoned Amadioha. I have abandoned the gods of my father's house. I have abandoned Islam. I have abandoned every other thing. That is what makes the, uh, the, the confession genuine. For somebody to say, yes, I love Jesus. And still holding on to other gods, that confession is false. The question is, has that person come to the point where there is an abandonment of every other thing and a casting of oneself upon Christ? If a person, I will say this with, 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 with all seriousness, a syncretist is not a Christian. It's not possible. He's not a Christian. If a person is saying Jesus in the morning and he's doing Ramadan, that person is not a Christian. If a person is saying Jesus in the morning and is going to a medicine man for solution, or perhaps going to a professional witch doctor that dresses with a suit for solution, oh, that's not the mark of a Christian. To say Jesus Christ is Lord is to repent and turn from every other way and to cast oneself upon him. So it's not an easy thing. And it's more than that. It also comes with a practical submission to his lordship. It's to submit to his lordship. In chapter 2, verse 3, this is how John puts this fact. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, whoever makes that confession but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So a proper confession of Christ will come with faith and repentance and also come with a submission to his laws in our lives. That's the second ground. The third ground of our assurance, John tells us in verse 16, is abiding love. So in verse 16, he tells us what he has already told us. Previously, he has told us that God is love. So that love is in the very nature, the very nature of God is love. And all that he does is, is love. And then he tells us also that we have experienced that love in Christ. So what he's doing in the first part of verse 16 is to repeat what he has told us. So look at verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Because we've seen it in Jesus Christ. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So the ground of assurance is abiding in love. What does it mean to abide in love? I think it means that we have a lifestyle of love. Now, have we ever heard this, maybe it's a joke, default settings? A Christian's default setting is love. Now, this is where the, the genuine love is different from hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has an on and off switch. There's a time when the hypocrite pushes the switch off and becomes who he truly is or who she truly is. A Christian's love button is constantly on from 7 a.m. in the morning to 7 p.m. at night. A lifestyle of love. But this abiding in love also comes with a desire to love. A Christian would long to love more. Would long for more and more opportunities to show love to other Christians. That's what it means to abide in love. 
And so John gives us these three grounds of assurance. He says, the first ground is the indwelling spirit. The second ground is the confession of Jesus Christ. And the third ground is abiding love. So, these are the facts. I want us to ask ourselves questions this morning. Can I say that God is doing something in my life? Now, this is, this again is a question that I can only ask for myself. Can I say that I can see a progressive growth in holiness in my life? Can I say that I am seeing more love, more joy, more peace, more long-suffering, more faithfulness? Can I say that? Can I say that I am becoming more loving? That the, 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 the traits of believers as given in the scriptures, I am seeing it in my life. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible can be seen in your life. But that as I look at myself from January to today, I can see that God is doing something in my life. If I can say that, then I'm a Christian. If I cannot say that, I'm not a Christian. Can I say that I know of the Holy Spirit taking the very words of Scripture and applying it to my soul? Can I say I know something of the inward witness of the Spirit? Or I'm just here doing what every other person is doing? I'm here because my father is a Christian, my mother is a Christian, and everybody around me are Christians. Can I say that the Holy Spirit really indwells me? And I know of his reassurance deep in my soul. Can I say that? If I can say that, I'm a Christian. If I cannot say that, I'm not a Christian. Can I say that my confession is a believing one? Or is Jesus one of my options? Do I come to Sunday because it's a cultural thing to do? And then during the week, I do any other thing I want. I seek for help wherever I want. I worship my idols. I enjoy whatever I want to enjoy. Is Jesus truly Lord? Can I say that? If I can say that I'm a Christian, if I cannot say that, I am just deceiving myself. Can I say that I am seeing a practical submission that when I read the Bible and Jesus says, do not do this, I try to not do it. Or do I just come to the Bible and say, ha, this Christianity hard though, and continue living my life? Do I come to the Bible and say, ah, this is a new duty. I did not know I'm supposed to do this. Lord, help me do this. Or do I come and I just gather information? Sunday after Sunday, my notes are full. But if I look at my life from January to August so far, there is nothing I have learned that is applied in my life. I'm just gathering information. I'm just reading books. And there's actually nothing in my life that shows that I am submitting to Christ. If there's no submission in my life, I am not a Christian. There's no two way about it. Can I say that love is my default setting? And I'm going to say it this way. This week I was thinking about the man Barnabas. The companion of Paul, his father did not name him Barnabas. His name was Joseph. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 to 37, the Bible tells us that the apostles called him 
Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. I'm applying this to this love issue. Can other people in church say about me that I actually love? Can my wife, can my husband say about me that I love? Can my maid say about me that I love? Can my children, my co-workers, those around me, can they say that I love? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul tells us some things about love. He says, love is patient. Am I patient with others? Love is kind. And he's trying to show the effects of love, the fruits of love. Am I kind? Love does not envy. <laughs> can, can somebody look at me and say that I am not envious of what other people have? He said, love does not boast. Love is not arrogant and prideful. Can that be said about me? Love is not rude. And you see, the way 1 Corinthians 13 is structured, it is around the unity of the church. So, chapter 12, talking about how the gifts, chapter 14. So, it is in the context of church life. So, if the people in church cannot say that I am not rude, there's a problem. Because it will show. Paul says, love does not insist on its own way. Yes. So, when something happens and they say, sorry, we will not adopt your way. Aha! It will show whether you are truly loving. Love is not resentful. My way has been abandoned. Hence, I will squeeze my face. They are not doing what I want them to do. Do they know who I am? I've studied this for 50 years. Somewhere. And then I come here and I say, do this and you are not doing it. My way must be done. Can people say that about you? That you are not always insisting on your own way. He says, love bears all. Love believes all. Love hopes all. Love endures all. Can the people around me say that? It's often the case that people around us will testify whether we're actually abiding in love more than us. Because we can think we are loving. <laughs> we, can, we can think we are loving. But people around us are the best test of whether we are loving or not. These are the tests that John gives us this morning. And I want us all to go back and think upon these things. To the unbeliever, your duty this morning is to cry out, Lord, save me. I do not see these things in my life. Save me. It is clear that these things are not true of me. I, I know I come to church. I do a lot of things. But these things are not true of me. Lord, would you show me mercy and save me from my sins? And for the believer, let me say this. I hope we know that we can seek for greater assurance. There are levels of assurance. Assurance is like a scale. So assuming you have a scale of 1 to 10, there's 1 assurance, there's 2 assurance, there's 3 assurance, there's 4 assurance, there's 5 assurance, there's 6 assurance. And all of us this morning who are believers fall on one of those levels of assurance. Can we pray and say, Lord, I need greater and greater assurance. The older guys, the old men, used to speak of a full assurance of salvation. Say, God, grant me deeper submission to Christ. Grant me more and more love for you and for the people around me, my brothers and sisters in church. Grant me more and more fruits of the Spirit and more of His witness. When we have assurance here, eh? Christianity becomes sweet. 
Have you ever gone to preach to somebody before? And you are just asking yourself, who needs salvation inside the two of us? An assured Christian receives boldness for duty. Receives strength for duty. Have you gone to pray before? One of the reasons why some of us do not, cannot sustain prayer is because the moment we say Heavenly Father, there's no assurance. How dare I call you Heavenly Father? The reason why we struggle in many of our Christian duties is because there's no assurance. This greater assurance will help us survive anything that comes to us. Tinibu, or worse than Tinibu, assurance will help us survive it. The reason why Christians are fretting sometimes is perhaps this assurance is lacking. Ah, that I am in Christ. Nothing moves me from Christ. Come with me. Assurance. And I think I shared this story on Tuesday. During the French Revolution, things were happening. France was burning. Everywhere was scattered. And there was a man who was there, just calm. He said, it will be well with the church of God. Why would I fret? Ah, it will be well with the church of God. It will be well with me. That's a man who is assured of his salvation. What happened? They come here, they bomb this place up. Straight to glory. No more eating without meat. No more thinking, how, how do I go out today? No money for fuel. No more buying drugs. It's somebody who is assured that can survive in Nigeria. And survive. And you see the man joyful. I say, oh boy, you get money? Money no day. But I am in Christ. I'm assured whatever comes my way. That's what assurance can do. It will answer all of our soul's objections. When I have assurance, whatever the devil may say, oh, I am in God. God is in me. I'm a Christian. Glory to his name. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you take these words that we have heard, feeble words they may be, from the lips of a feeble man. We plant it deep in our hearts and grant that these words will bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray.